Isaiah 66, verses 15 through 24. And this is the word of the Lord. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations." And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched. And they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. And now let's turn to Romans chapter 15, verses 14 through 16 for the New Testament reading. And then we'll turn back to Isaiah. First Romans 15, 14 through 16. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, today we come to our final passage and final sermon from the prophet Isaiah, at least the final sermon from Isaiah in this series. And if nothing else, uh, you, the congregation, you have proven the truth of the perseverance of the saints. Uh, We began this uh, study of Isaiah uh, two and a half years ago, if you remember. Uh, although we have taken some breaks along the way. And if my uh, uh, math is correct, uh, this is the 59th uh, sermon that uh, I will have preached uh, from Isaiah during that time. Uh, But just to put that into perspective, uh, John Calvin, over a four-year period, preached 353 sermons uh, from Isaiah. 
I don't know if that's some kind of record or not, but it's hard to imagine someone preaching more sermons from a book of the Bible than that. But after having worked our way through Isaiah, I think that even 353 sermons would not be sufficient uh, to, um, to unpack and to uh, cover all the glorious truths uh, that are revealed in this book uh, concerning God and his uh, salvation uh, for us in Christ. I think even a thousand sermons would only begin to scratch the surface of uh, the glory of God uh, that is revealed uh, in this book. And I hope that our study of Isaiah has encouraged you to return to this prophecy uh, again and again uh, to mine the depths of the revelation of God's majesty, of his character uh, that is so uh, wonderfully given to us uh, in this prophet. Our passage this morning contains the final words of the Lord that Isaiah wanted to leave with his readers. And so in a sense, uh, these are God's parting words to us as we move on from Isaiah, at least his parting words to us uh, as far as uh, this particular book of the Bible is concerned. And as God's final words to us uh, through the prophets, uh, we see two truths that the Lord would have uh, us to take away or two truths that he would impress upon our hearts uh, in this final passage. And the first truth is this, uh, the certainty of the day of judgments, the certainty of the day of judgment. And the second truth that the Lord would impress on our hearts this morning from this passage is the urgency that today is the day of salvation. So first, the certainty of the day of judgment, and secondly, the urgency that today is the day of salvation. So first, the certainty of the coming day of judgment. In verses 15 through 17, uh, the Lord declares that he himself is coming to the world in order to judge the peoples of the world. And in verse 15, he says that his coming will be in fire. Uh, he says that his rebuke will be with flames of fire. Uh, verse 16 says, by fire will the Lord enter into judgment. And fire here stands for not only the, uh, the holiness of God, but also the absolute destructiveness of his judgment uh, for those uh, who will be condemned because they have not come uh, to Christ in this life. And so on that great day, God will consume his enemies with his righteous wrath. In verse 16, it says, those slain by the Lord shall be many. And who are the enemies of God who will be slain by the sword of the Lord, the sword of his judgment? Uh, Isaiah describes who they are in verse 17. They are those who are guilty of idolatry and false worship. Isaiah says that they go into the sacred gardens uh, they eat all kinds of unclean uh, flesh there. They eat the meat of pigs, the abomination, whatever that is, and mice. And what Isaiah is doing here in verse 17, he's describing in Old Testament terms what is essentially true for all who reject the Lord and his truth. And that is those who reject God will either worship God falsely or they will uh, worship idols. Uh, we could put this in terms of our own time living after the coming of Christ. 
all who refuse to acknowledge and worship the Lord Jesus Christ, all who refuse to bow to him and acknowledge that he is Lord, that he is the Son of God, all who refuse to come to him for salvation are guilty of unbelief, sin, and idolatry because they will worship something other than the true God as revealed in Christ. And unless those who do not know Christ and those who reject Christ and those who are guilty of idolatry, unless they come by faith in Jesus Christ to the Lord by the grace of God, unless they are brought to repentance and faith on the day of judgment, they will be condemned as Isaiah proclaims here in these verses. As he says in verse 17, they shall come to an end together. And we know from other parts of Scripture that this judgment will be carried out by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8 uh, tell us about the fulfillment of this prophecy. Uh, verse 7, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, verse 8, in flaming fire. So Jesus will come in flaming fire, just as Isaiah says here. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And so Isaiah is telling us here, the Lord is speaking through Isaiah, that the day of the coming judgment of God is most certain. He is most assuredly, most certainly coming again in order to judge the world. And in fact, we can be more sure of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to judge the world than we can be sure of the coming of tomorrow. Uh, we can even be more sure of the coming of Christ to judge than we can even be sure of the coming of the very next hour today. Now, we are all guilty sinners. Uh, apart from the grace of God, we are all deserving of this very judgment, this awful judgment that Isaiah declares to us here. But praise God, there is one way for you and I, and there is only one way for you and I to be prepared to meet Christ as our judge, and that is to come to him by faith as your Savior today. So come to Jesus as your Redeemer today, and you will be prepared to meet him as your judge when he comes again. But that's the first truth that Isaiah would have us uh, to know that the day of judgment is coming most certainly. The second truth is this. He wants to impress on our hearts the urgency that today is the day of salvation. And we'll spend more time on this point. Let's look at verse 18. Look at verse 18, if you will. In the very first words of verse 18, the Lord speaks of those, again, who will suffer uh, his judgment when he comes uh, to, to judge. He says in verse 18, for I know their works and their thoughts. Uh, that is the works and the thoughts of those that he just described in verse 17, those who are guilty of idolatry. But then right after that, in verse 18, uh, the Lord uh, pivots uh, very abruptly in the middle of the verse. And he begins to speak of the worldwide salvation that he is going to accomplish. So again, look at verse 18. He says, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. He's referring there not to condemnation. But to salvation. And then in verse 19, the next verse, and another abrupt change or pivot, just after this very brief declaration that all of the redeemed of the world shall come and behold the glory of the Lord, the Lord goes on to describe in verse 19 
how this worldwide in gathering of his redeemed people, how that will take place. And that will take place as the Lord will raise up emissaries from among his redeemed people, and he will send them throughout the world to declare his glory. And that is the great missionary movement that the Lord speaks of in verse 19. And this will begin with a sign. He says in verse 19, and I will set a sign among them. That is, God will set a sign when he says among them, he's referring to the redeemed people of Israel. I will set a sign among them. And what is that, what is that sign that the Lord will set among his people? That sign is none other than the one that Isaiah has already prophesied to us about. And that is the servant of the Lord, the Messiah. That sign is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. His coming into the world, his incarnation, his life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, all that Jesus is as the Son of God and Savior of sinners, and all that he has done for that salvation, this is the sign that the Lord will set among his redeemed people uh, one day, according to Isaiah. Now, Isaiah has already told us about this sign in other parts of his prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, he says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 11, verse 12. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel. And so the sign that the Lord will set among his people is the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done for the salvation of sinners. And he is not only the sign by which some of the people of Israel will be saved one day, according to Isaiah, but he is also the sign under which the Lord will send out missionaries from his people in order to declare the grace and the salvation of God in Jesus Christ. Again, look at verse 19. Here is this great missionary work that will begin with the coming of Christ. He says, I will set a sign among them and from them I will send survivors to the nations. Now, what Isaiah is prophesying here is exactly what took place, what we read about in the book of Acts after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and after his exaltation. Uh, before he was exalted into heaven, uh, Jesus uh, gathered his disciples and he commanded them, his 12 disciples who were all from the people of Israel, he commanded them that they should go out to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so Isaiah is prophesying of what will take place with the coming of Christ, the pouring out of the spirit and the sending of the disciples to the nations to declare the glory of God. And when we read this prophecy of Isaiah in the light of its fulfillment with the coming of Christ and the beginning of this proclamation of the gospel to the world, uh, we learn here three truths about the great missionary endeavor of the church. Uh, three truths that were true then and three truths that are true today uh, when missionaries are sent out into the world to preach the gospel. And the first truth is this. That missionaries are sent out with the message of God's glory. Uh, this is the message that they declare. The glory of God. Verse 19. The Lord says, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. Uh, now, in verse 19, the Lord goes on to say that he will send out uh, 
his emissaries or messengers to these very specific nations, uh, to Tarshish, uh, Pool, and Lud, uh, to Tubal, Pool, and Javan. Um, scholars don't know exactly uh, what nations these are, at least some of them or most of them. Uh, for most of them, all we have are educated guesses. But the point is not that Isaiah is giving us a precise and exhaustive list of all the nations to which these messengers will go. But the point is this. He is painting a picture for us. And that, and that is that these ambassadors of Christ, these messengers of the gospel, they will be sent out into the whole world, to all the nations of the world, even to the coastlands far away. And what do all of these various uh, nations have in common? The Lord says in verse 19, they have not heard my fame or seen my glory. These are all of the nations apart from the covenant people of Israel who throughout the ages have been living and walking in darkness apart from Christ, living in ignorance, worshiping idols because they have not seen or heard the fame of the true God of, of Israel, of the living and true God. And so for that reason, these messengers They will be sent out with this message, verse 19, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. Now, part of the glory of God that these messengers will declare to the nations is that God is the creator of heaven and earth, that he is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. And that is part of God's glory, the glory of his power, his authority, his majesty, that he is Lord over all. But another part of God's glory is that he is also a God of grace, of mercy and compassion. And part of God's glory in that vein is that he has revealed his love in the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. And he has made a way of salvation for sinners through Jesus Christ, his son. And so God is full of glory. He is glorious both in his might and power and in his compassion and love and mercy towards sinners. One way that we can think about our basic problem as sinners is that we give glory to or we glory in all the wrong things. It's not that we're not interested in glory. It's that we seek glory or we glory in all the things that we should not. We do not glory in our creator. We do not glorify God as the creator, but we seek our glory in the things that he has created. Uh, Romans chapter 1 verse 23 describes what this looks like. Uh, We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so rather than seeking glory or glorifying the true God, We seek our glory in the idols of our own making, the things that we have created for ourselves to glorify. And so we make much of in our hearts or we glory in power or pleasure or wealth or popularity. We glory in particularly us who live in our particular day and age in this day in which we exalt the supposedly autonomous self. Uh, The radical individualism of our day, we glory in the delusion that our greatest good is to be free to live uh, for ourselves in the way that we alone have the right to choose. We glory in this. But the message of the gospel is this, that God has shown us true glory. 
He has revealed his glory in Jesus Christ, his son, because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And his glory is no more revealed than when we, than when we see Jesus, the son of God, dying upon the cross in the place of sinners in order to make atonement for us that we might be saved there at the cross is revealed God's glory in the greatest, his mercy, his love, his justice, his goodness, and the salvation that he has accomplished for us. And so the gospel says this, the gospel is the message to the world, all these things that we glory in, that they are worthless, that they are nothing, that they are inglorious. But here, says the gospel, here is true glory. It is found in God and it is found in God as he comes to us in Jesus Christ. The glory of God revealed in his son. And so in this way, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is to do what Isaiah says these messengers will do. That is to declare God's glory among the nations. The second thing this prophecy teaches us about the missionary work of the church is that Missionaries proclaim this message of the gospel of God's glory in the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 20, right after the Lord says that his messengers will declare the glory of God among the nations. He says in verse 21, right after that, he says, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. And so there is no question whatsoever. There is no doubt at all that this message of God's glory, this message of the gospel, that it will be received by faith, that it will result in those who turn to Christ in repentance and faith and come to the Lord to worship him. It will be effectual. It will be powerful. Again, verse 21, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations. And so God promises, he promises to bless the preaching of his word. He promises to make it effectual, that it will be powerful. And he makes his gospel message powerful and effective for salvation because he sends out his spirit with his word. The spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, goes out with his word. First Thessalonians 1.5, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now, we live in a very secular world. We live in the modern world or the postmodern world. Uh, we live in a time and place where uh, it is very much true. There is uh, an increasing indifference to uh, the word of God. There is also, uh, at the same time, uh, an increasing hostility to the word of God. And because we know that salvation is only found in Christ, we long to see people come to Christ for salvation. We want others to come to know this uh, redemption, this hope that we have as Christians. But because we live in this very secular world, we may be tempted to think in our world today, in our complicated and secular and modern world, isn't there another way to bring people to Jesus Christ than the simple proclamation of the gospel? Yes, preaching the gospel, that worked in 30 AD. It worked in the 1500s, but is preaching the gospel, is it still effective today? Are there not other ways to communicate or better ways to communicate the truth of God's word? 
And the answer to that question, is preaching the gospel still effective today? The answer to that question is absolutely yes. And that's because the preaching of the word of God, the proclamation of God's word is what God promises to use in order to bring his people to himself, to bring salvation to sinners and to establish the kingdom of Jesus Christ on earth. Let's hear another verse from Isaiah, two verses, Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. And these, this promise is as true today as it was in Isaiah's day. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish the purpose uh, it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing uh, for which I sent it. And so the message of the gospel goes out in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the third thing that this prophecy shows us about the missionary endeavor of the church is that the result of the work of the missionaries will be the praise and the worship of God. Again, look at verse 20. Isaiah says, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord. And so uh, these Gentiles then who respond by faith in the preaching of the gospel, uh, they uh, will be brought to what God says is his holy mountain, Jerusalem, and they will be brought there as a offering to the Lord. That is, these converted Gentiles will be a kind of spiritual sacrifice that are offered to the Lord for his praise and his worship. Uh, Isaiah compares uh, these converted Gentiles uh, to the grain offerings of the Israelites. Again, verse 20. Uh, I'll read the first and the last part of it. At first, he says, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. And then in the last, he says, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And so uh, these Gentiles who were once unclean, who were not fit to come into the presence of God, they will be now clean. They will be uh, suitable sacrifices for the worship of God. And as they are brought to faith in Jesus Christ, they are, in a sense, brought to Jerusalem. That is the spiritual Jerusalem, the church where they are offered, in a sense, to God as a spiritual sacrifice for his glory, for his worship. Uh, the Apostle Paul had this very same idea in mind, perhaps he even had this uh, passage from Isaiah in mind when he described his ministry of preaching to the gospel as one of making acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. Uh, this is the New Testament passage that we read, Romans 15, 16. He says that God gave him grace to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And so that is one way that the preaching of the gospel, the work of the missionaries, this is one way that it will result in the praise and the worship of God. That is, as those who are converted, who are brought to Christ as a result of the message of the gospel, they will be a kind of spiritual sacrifice, an offering to God for his praise. But at the same time, these Gentile converts to Christ, they will not only be a, sacri a sacrificial offering to God, but they themselves will also be engaged in the worship of God. And that's what Isaiah refers to in verse 21. 
He says, and some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. Uh, He will take for priests and for Levites those from the Gentiles, which is an astonishing thing when you consider it, that the Gentiles also will become Levites and priests. And what Isaiah is saying here is what the New Testament says more clearly and more fully in 1 Peter 1.9. And that is that uh, just as the priests and the Levites led the people of God under the old covenant and the worship of God, so now in the new covenant, all people who come to Christ, Jew and Gentile, will be priests to God. 1 Peter 1.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so the result of this great missionary endeavor that Isaiah envisions in this prophecy, or rather what the Lord says through Isaiah, the result will be the worship of God, the worship of God. And it's been said, truly, that this is the most fundamental goal of missions. The most basic, the most fundamental goal of missions is not the salvation of sinners. That is a goal of missions. We want sinners to be saved. But even more fundamentally, we want God to be glorified. We want God to be worshipped. John Piper, uh, you may be familiar with this quote. Uh, He puts it this way. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Uh, Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship abides forever. And that is exactly what Isaiah goes on to say next in this passage. He gives us a picture of this eternally abiding worship of God. He says in verses 22 and 23, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. Verse 23, From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And so in this beautiful picture that Isaiah gives us of the redeemed people of God, the new creation, eternally worshiping the Lord, in this picture, Isaiah is giving us, or the Lord is giving us, a promise, a wonderful promise, a promise to every sinner who hears the gospel and responds in faith, and that is, If you turn from your sin and come to Jesus as your Savior, I will give you a place in glory forever and ever and ever. There you will have never-ending bliss, never-ending life, never-ending joy, never-ending communion with me as your Father in heaven. And this, my heaven, this will endure as long as I am God, which is to say forever, and your place In my heaven and the glory that I have prepared for you will last forever. And so this truth of the eternality, the never endingness of heaven, this magnifies uh, the greatness of God's salvation to us. 
that this salvation that is promised us in the gospel is eternal life, eternal life. But it's the same truth of the eternality of the final state of man that makes the very last verse of Isaiah, his last words, so sobering, so somber. Look at verse 24. He says, and they shall go out and look on the dead, the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Uh, evidently, in the Jewish synagogues, when uh, this passage from Isaiah is read, uh, the reader of this passage, after he reads verse 24, he'll go back and he'll read verse 23, uh, just to soften the impact uh, of the weightiness, the gravity of the final words in verse 24. But this is the final verse that Isaiah has put in his prophecy. This, uh, these are the final words that the Holy Spirit uh, wants us to hear from this portion of Scripture. He wants us to hear it no matter how weighty and sobering it is. He wants us to hear it because it is sobering. And it is sobering because Isaiah is giving us here a grim picture of the reality of hell. That's what verse 24 is. It's a picture of hell. Now, when Isaiah says that the redeemed of the Lord shall go out and look on the dead bodies, uh, he's not necessarily, necessarily giving us an exact, precise description of what the experience of the redeemed will be in heaven, that uh, we will be looking on those suffering in hell. Uh, he's not necessarily saying that's exactly what will take place. But the point of this in any case, the point of what Isaiah is saying here is let this stand as a warning to you this side of eternity. For those who are still living in this world, hear these words. This is a warning for us who still live in this life. That there is an, the awful reality of hell for those who reject Jesus Christ. And just as heaven will last forever for those who come to Christ... So hell will last forever for those who reject him. And this is something that we struggle to grasp. We struggle to comprehend because we cannot comprehend eternity. Our finite minds cannot fully grasp the, the magnitude of what it means uh, for, for there never to be an end for eternity. Uh, the Scottish theologian Thomas Boston, he came up with one way that perhaps could help us to, to appreciate a, a little bit more just that never-ending character of eternity. Uh, he says, look at a mountain. Uh, for us, he would tell us, look at, look at Mount Rose, tallest mountain in the area. And uh, think of a little bird who comes to this mountain uh, once every thousand years. And when he comes to the mountain, he picks up in his beak a tiny little grain of dust and he carries it away. And he comes back in another thousand years and he picks up another little tiny grain of dirt and carries it away. Now, oh, how many ages and ages and ages would pass before that bird finally reduced the mountain to nothing? And even at that point, there will have been no real progress in time. It will be essentially that eternity has just begun. Uh, Thomas Boston, uh, he says this, he says, when millions of ages are passed in eternity, 
What is past bears no proportion to what is to come. No, not so much as one drop of water falling from the tip of one's finger bears to all the waters of the ocean. There is no end to it. While God is, it shall be. It is an entry without an end to it, a continual succession of ages, a glass always running, which shall never run out. And what the Lord is saying in this passage is this, that as incomprehensibly wonderful uh, the truth is of eternal life in heaven, of bliss and joy and life that will go on forever and ever and ever, so the reality of an eternity in hell is just as incomprehensibly awful to consider. Some theologians have conjectured, speculated, um, that perhaps the condemned in hell will come to a place where they simply cease to exist. Uh, But the Bible knows nothing of this doctrine of annihilationism. The Bible knows nothing of the teaching that the, the damned in hell will simply Uh, cease to exist or be annihilated altogether. Rather, the teaching of Scripture is very clear, including Isaiah here, that hell will be a never-ending existence of darkness and pain and anguish with absolutely no end. And hell, therefore, is a kind of permanent state of dying. It is an eternal living death. Again, to quote Thomas Boston, they shall ever be under the pangs of death, ever dying, but never dead. In the words of Isaiah, the worm of spiritual and physical corruption shall not die. In hell, those who are there, they will continue to grow in their own spiritual depravity. They shall endure the physical torments of hell forever. The fire of God's wrath shall not be quenched. In the absolute hopelessness that there will ever be an end to the suffering, there will be absolutely no hope whatever that there will ever be an end. This will only add to the misery of those who suffer in hell. Again, to quote Thomas Boston, to see floods of wrath ever coming and never to cease, to be ever in torment and to know that there shall never, never be a release will be the top stone to put on the misery of the damned. This is a sobering reality. This is a truth that God has revealed in his word. It's not pleasant to consider But God would have us know that there are consequences for unbelief and rejecting Christ in this world, grievous consequences, and that is an eternity apart from Christ and his grace spent under the fires of God's judgment. But Isaiah would have us to know this, that although there is a day coming when there will never again be the possibility of salvation, That day has not yet come. Praise God, that day has not yet come for you and me. We are still living in this world. We are still on this side of eternity. And at least for today, while we still are here in this life, the Lord is holding out to you and me this wonderful promise. And this is the message of Isaiah, that there is eternal life. There is the forgiveness of sins. There is salvation in the Lord, in his son, Jesus Christ. And so this is the urgency of the message of the gospel, that while there is still time before you pass into eternity, come to Christ by faith. Come to him today. Come to him now. Second Corinthians 6 2. behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let's pray.